Welcome to the CondoVultures.com podcast with your host, Peter Zalewski, a Miami real estate broker, Wall Street consultant, and expert witness. This podcast is focused on identifying real estate buying opportunities in the South Florida condo market, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. The CondoVultures.com podcast is not authorized by the South Florida real estate industry and will most likely annoy many of the region's talking heads. This podcast will feature straight talk and salty language that could be offensive to some. Please remember that part that past investment success does not determine future gains, especially in the South Florida's volatile condo market. For more information, please visit condovultures.com. This is Peter Zaluski. I'm the host of the condovultures.com podcast. This is the inaugural podcast. Hope to be producing a podcast at least once a week. Depending on uh, market conditions and situations, I might be doing a little bit more regularly. Before I get started, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I originally am from Chicago, grew up there, then went to the University of Missouri where I graduated with a degree in journalism. So I got what they call a bachelor's of journalism. After journalism uh, school, J school, if you will, I uh, got a job working outside Minneapolis. I was working about uh, writing about small business and actually agriculture at the time, which didn't really fit me because I grew up in the city. Uh, I was one of these city kids who had to take the uh, public transportation to and from school, did a whole variety of different things. My parents, for what it's worth, uh, used to go and buy two and three flat, three uh, unit flats. They would renovate them, then they turn around and rent them out. Never had any formal education in that, but uh, I was sort of always been around it, uh, primarily because of uh, what my parents were doing at the time. So when I got out of college, I was writing about small business uh, shortly thereafter. I got a job writing about economic development, business development, and real estate at a publication called Miami Today. Miami Today is a weekly publication that's still around. After that, I had a stint where I was um, uh, living and working in Australia. I had a skilled labor visa, was able to tour the country, do a whole variety of different things. After about two years of living in Australia, as well as traveling uh, throughout uh, South Pacific and other places, came back to Miami and got involved with writing again worked at a publication uh, called World City. World City is a publication focused on trade, international business, variety of different things. From there, I became an editor, uh, associate editor to be specific, at the South Florida Business Journal. Spent, I think it was probably a year and a half or so. At that point, I took a pay cut and a demotion, and I went to work for a legal publication called the Miami Daily Business Review. At the Daily Business Review, what I was doing was writing about banking. It was an interesting time to be writing about banking because this was while the last cycle was really sort of underway. Last cycle in South Florida began in 2003, ultimately peaked in 2006. 2007 flattened, 2008 began to free fall. We all know what happened with Lehman Brothers and the Great Recession. By 2009, all of the uh, condos, for the most part, the, the deep discounts, they were sort of bottoming out. 2010, we cleaned up uh, the condo market, and then ultimately, in 2011, you began this cycle again. So while I was working at the uh, Miami Daily Business Review, what I did is I spent about six months or so putting together a hit list of banks. If condo developers were to go bad, which institutions, which lenders, if you will, were providing the construction loans, and which would be the ones that would ultimately have to uh, deal with some troubled loans? That list tended out, uh, ended up being a little fortuitous because it uh, suggested and indicated a number of banks that ultimately would fail 
including in there was Wachovia Bank. You had Washington Mutual in there. What was interesting too about putting together the hit list, the story, the itemized list of all the different banks that had ex exposure in the condo market of South Florida, is you turned out a lot of the different brands or names that you heard during the Great Recession, which ran out of trouble. Many of them were all financing uh, condos down in South Florida. Had everything to do from the Icelandic government to Hypo out of Germany, to Lehman Brothers, to Goldman, to a whole variety of different types. So while we were reaching our peak in the South Florida condo market, what I did is I created a company called Condo Vultures. Condo Vultures was created in the, eh, it's about March of 2006. In March of 2006, at the time when South Florida was really kind of peaking out in terms of the condo market, I created this um, buyer brokerage called Condo Vultures Realty. And the focus was to work with buyers to try to identify opportunities in the marketplace. The rationale was when the market goes sideways, no one's gonna want listings uh, in terms of trying to sell properties. What you really gonna wanna do if you wanna make money is you're gonna wanna be on the buy side, working with buyers who had cash, who could then come in and uh, take care of discounted uh, deals. So the primary focus of the Condo Vulture Realty aspect was to use data, public information that was readily available. A lot of it I knew how to gather because uh, being a journalist for roughly 13 years, I was able to figure out Florida's system using government records as well as a variety of other tactics to sort of create hit lists, create models of individual buildings within markets and then ultimately know what was trading, what was not trading, what they were trading, what the units were trading at and what the developers were still stuck with in terms of unsold inventory. A lot of people tend to rely on the multiple listing service. They think the multiple listing service is gonna give them a great perspective as to what's really going on in the marketplace, especially in the condo marketplace. I would tell you the MLS, multiple listing service, doesn't really do that. It gives you sort of a picture, but doesn't give you the entire picture. So then the question becomes, why is that? Well, the reason it doesn't give you the entire picture is Anybody who is listing something on the multiple listing service, they're effectively using a member of an association called the uh, Realtor Association. In Miami, it's called the Realtor Association of Miami. This is an organization with uh, close to 60,000 members. Everybody pays $1,000 a year. And effectively what they get for that membership is support, but more importantly, they get this database. This database is called the multiple listing service or the MLS. Now, in order to put something in the multiple listing service or the MLS, a commission has to be offered to another member in order for somebody to uh, participate. If you do that, it's known as a formal listing. Now, this uh, particular type of approach, what it means is that someone is gonna be paying a third party in order to represent them one way or another. What happens with developer sales, which is primarily new, co new condo uh, buildings, is that the developer doesn't wanna pay necessarily somebody in the multiple listing service. They might do it with certain circumstances, we'll take a few units out of a three or four or 500 unit building and to go ahead and list it. But that's just basically to chum the water and try to get realtors as well as others that kind of come in. But in reality, what a developer would love to do is would love to use his or her in-house staff to sell the units. Typically they'll pay, um, the developer will pay the in-house staff. These are real estate professionals mostly, um, developer will pay these in-house staff members just a portion of the commission that they would otherwise have to pay if they use this multiple listing service. Now to kind of put the MLS or the multiple listing service into perspective, as well as the realtors, think of it this way. 
if you like to play golf, you join a country club and for your dues, you get to play on the course. If you're a sailor or you like to boat or, or sail, what you do is you join a sailing club, therefore you can use the services, maybe dock your boat, do a variety of different things, and that's what your dues go for. If you join a realtor association, effectively your money goes towards the primary factor is gonna be the MLS, it's gonna be this database, which is a very convenient and easy and readily available, uh, there's readily available information related to it, and that's what a lot of people rely on. What most people don't realize or recognize is that there's a bunch of deals that go on that never make it in the multiple listing service. Why don't they make it in the multiple listing service? Simple, people don't wanna pay commissions. So what do you do in a circumstance like that? Well, you look at government records and you look at sort of how things are transacting. Now, why is this important? Because typically this part of what's called shadow inventory or unlisted property, which simply means it's not in the MLS, typically this portion is really what sort of drives the market. These are the deals that go directly without a middleman most of the time, where a buyer will go directly to a developer and cut a deal. Now, sometimes these, these buyers, they'll use a realtor and only a portion of commission will be paid simply for that buyer broker who's bringing in the buyer versus a traditional deal where there's gonna be a commission paid on both sides. So let me sort of give you a scenario. Generally speaking, when you see a sign in front of, let's call it a house, even though I do condos, only condos. Let's say you see a sign in front of a house, which we've all seen for sale, call this broker, this real estate agent, they're gonna go ahead and they're gonna give you information um, and they're gonna try to sell the house. Now, you need to understand when you see that sign, in Florida, the person who's posting the sign is typically um, is working for and has a fiduciary relationship with the seller. So their job is to try to get the highest and best price for the seller. They have to be fair to you, the buyer, but their primary role is to try to get the property sold. If they get the property sold, they basically get to make a commission. Real estate is a eat what you kill type of industry. If you do a deal, you make money. If you don't do a deal, it's a loss leader. You're hoping that that person you've taken around and shown them property, that ultimately they're gonna go ahead and they're gonna transact the deal. Now, oftentimes people do not follow through would-be buyers and they don't transact deals. And as a result, the real estate professional, that person with the license, whether they're part of the realtor club or not, they basically have wasted their time. So the payoff has to be great when a deal does close, therefore you keep so many people in the particular industry. So going back to my scenario, so you see a sign outside of a house and you look at that transaction, let's say you have a realtor who's working with you, they highlight it to you, your realtor would be representing the transaction, not necessarily you fiduciary, on a fiduciary basis, but they're representing the transaction. Then you'll have the other realtor who's representing the seller. They're the ones who put the sign up in front of the house and they got their pretty picture on it. Well, in a deal like that, there's typically a 6% commission that's paid. 3% of the purchase price will be paid to the person who's gonna put up the sign with their pretty picture. 3% will be paid to the agent who is representing you, the buyer. Simply bringing you in there will then uh, tip off and trigger a commission to be paid. Why is that commission paid? Because both members are typically, um, uh, both individuals, real estate professionals, are part of the, the club, the realtor association and it's going through the MLS and the sign is all being marked, the sign is part of the marking aspect that, that's sort of out there. So that's a 6% commission um, in general. It's running through the MLS. Now the deals I'm talking about, which do not make the MLS, these will typically be a developer who decides they're gonna buy a piece of dirt, they're gonna put up a beautiful piece of, uh, beautiful condo, and they're gonna want somebody to buy it. What this real estate, or what this developer will do is bring in a real estate professional or so, doesn't necessarily have to be, They'll typically pay them some sort of um, office fee for showing up. 
I don't know, maybe $1,000 a month, something like that, just to sort of keep that real estate professional, that salesperson sort of stabilized. And then the developer will give them a percentage of the transactions. Typically in-house for a brokerage, which is representing a developer and trying to sell the units, they're gonna charge 2% of that 2% commission that the developer will pay for the brokerage. What will happen is one point of the two points will go to the, the brokerage firm the other point will be shared amongst all of the sales agents who are basically hawking or peddling the type of product. So you can see right there, you've been able to shave off the percentage of commission that has to be paid uh, basically to the sell side broker. Now what happens on the buy side, if that individual buyer walks in and they don't have a realtor, now suddenly the commission that in uh, the first scenario would be paid, that 3%, new construction typically tends to start off at 5% just for what it's worth. Now suddenly a buyer walks in without a realtor, lo and behold, that commission's not gonna be paid. So that's a 3% savings on the buy side, as well as probably a one point savings on the sell side. So in this scenario I'm talking about, uh, somebody walks in, they wanna buy from a developer, there's an in-house brokerage, instead of paying a 6% commission, the developer's now only paying two points. So you can see why developers really like that scenario. Why? Because ultimately they're able to increase their profit and or they can use that that fat, if you will, from commission from a negotiating perspective. Hopefully that makes sense to you and hopefully that gives you some perspective. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I bring this up is because these units will not be in the MLS, okay? So if they're not in the MLS, why is that a good or why is that a bad thing? Well, it's a good or a bad thing because what it means is there's a lack of transparency. There's a lack of information. Basically, you, the buyer, are going in there. You're at the mercy of the sell-side brokers who are telling you something and you have no way to verify it, you have no way to vet it, you have no way to check anything. Especially when you do pre-construction, when you're buying pre-construction. And what is pre-construction? Pre-construction is a developer who basically has purchased a piece of dirt. They've hired some professional staff to help them uh, turn this piece of dirt into a tower. And when they go ahead and they try to turn this piece of dirt into a tower, what they need to do is they need to bring in investors um, from a, a venture capital perspective. Think like a, uh, a startup company. Well, this developer will bring in uh, and these investors. These investors will help the developer basically to pay for the professional services, to get the building designed, to go through the permit process, and ultimately to pay the brokers who are on site selling it, give them something to live off of. Why is that? Because a project will typically take about five years. First year will be the preparation. Second year will ultimately be the sales or so. And then uh, year three, four, five is probably gonna be the construction as well as ultimately the closing. Now, in order to get from point A to point B, what has to happen is the developer has to have some cash to kind of push the project along. So what they'll do is a developer will bring in seed capital or possibly use their own money, but many developers learn from the last cycle. That's not necessarily a good idea because when stuff goes sideways, it inevitably always does, Developer has personal liability and is at risk and could lose a ton of money. So many developers like to bring in um, outside investors who will simply put their cash down, they're promised a certain type of return, inevitably they're paid off and or they're given units in return for what uh, return they were, they were sort of promised. So that's your typical type of scenario, kind of how it plays out, kind of how it, it, it kind of advances. Now, when a developer is trying to um, create one of these projects, what they'll typically do is they will release units in tranches. Tranches are simply a combination of units that have been cherry-picked that the developer is going to try to peddle. So if a salesperson tells you, well, this is the last so-and-so line, this is the last of this, the last of that, 
you're getting on the first one. You don't necessarily know if it's right or wrong. You don't know which tranche it is and you don't know much about pricing. You might be told that the average price on a building is $600 a square foot, which tended to be the average in this current cycle, which began in 2011. In reality, a guy above you might only be paying $500 a foot, maybe $800 a foot. It's, it's all across the board. How do you ultimately find out what your neighbors paid? We don't find out until the buildings are completed, the transactions are, are, are the units are transacted, and ultimately the records are recorded with the government. So the government, uh, the clerk of the court where the records are filed, ultimately give you the clarity and the transparency to see what things really trade at. So when you were dealing with pre-construction or you're dealing with units that are not ultimately on the multiple listing service, you're really sort of stabbing in the dark and the only thing you can do is rely on government records. Now the flip side is you go back to the multiple listing service and you can put together numbers very quickly and you can hope that all the numbers you're looking at are verifiable, they're right, they're, they're gonna give you great insight. What we've come to find out is that the multiple listing service can have some challenges. There's a case that recently occurred down here in South Florida with a, a broker who was well known called, or is well known called Kevin Tomlinson, as well as some other brokers uh, called the Jills. If you're interested in finding out more about that, I'd encourage you to check out an article that was written by Vanity Fair. It gets in the whole nuance of it. But the takeaway of the, the Kevin Tomlinson versus the Jills scenario is that information was not necessarily completely accurate. That was in the multiple listing service and therefore um, the lack of transparency was creating a disadvantage or an advantage for some. But the takeaway of it is if you are trading specifically off of the multiple listing service, again, which is a database that realtors use where commissions are offered for those members who participate, if you're trading simply as an investor off of this multiple listing service, you need to realize that there's a bunch of other information that's out there and it's something you ultimately kind of need to be aware of. So that would be an interesting point I would tell you to sort of uh, keep in mind as you're looking at this. This is probably a good time to take a break. So here's a message from one of our sponsors. Don't buy a South Florida condo discounted or distressed before taking a Condo Vultures correction tour. CondoVultures.com offers weekly bus and walking tours that focus on educating buyers on the how-tos of identifying discounted condos, analyzing the opportunities, and purchasing units. Every tour attendee receives a list of all condo projects in a particular market, a market assessment handout, and unmatched expert analysis. For more information on the condo correction tours, please visit condovultures.eventbrite.com or call 305-865-5859. Welcome back to the condovultures.com podcast with your host, Peter Zalewski. Um, as we go on, let me just uh, put out a couple disclosures. First and foremost, I'm a licensed real estate broker, been licensed in the state of Florida since 1995. I'm involved with a brokerage called Condo Vultures Realty, was established in 2006. Primarily it does buy side uh, brokerage, which means the role where we really excel is being able to work with buyers, helping them to sort of cherry pick and identify um, situations that are out there as well as negotiate the deals and ultimately transact uh, the deals. A lot of our clientele tends to be, uh, they tend to be well healed, done a lot of work with Wall Street types, uh, private equity types, a uh, whole variety of uh, those, let's say, that are uh, well-educated, have a lot of experience and basically know what they're looking for and they come to us because of the data as well as the understanding of the local marketplace. 
Now, if you're an individual who's looking to sort of uh, play with the big boys, we also can work with you. Um, have brokers who and real estate um, licensees who can take you out and basically use, give you the same firepower uh, that we use for the big boys to go ahead and sort of take advantage of the situations that are out there on the street. So if you're interested in that, you can go to the website, condovulturesrealty.com. Now, if you're interested in um, information related to uh, what's going on, but you want to go at it on your own, which I don't blame you, who the hell wants to pay a commission? So if you want to go at it on your own um, and you need a little bit of insight and want a better understanding, uh, you should check out our tours. We do tours on a weekly basis uh, during the winter months, fall and winter months. We do walking tours. So basically you get on the ground, you walk through, uh, point out different scenarios, give you some strategies, and you're able to figure stuff out very quickly. Uh, and then in the summer, we do uh, bus tours. Get on a bus, drive around for three hours in basically the same type of scenario. Now, why is this really sort of uh, worthwhile? Well, one of the things is when you go on one of our tours, what, there's, what it's going to include is going to be handouts and analysis. Uh, it's not a list necessarily for you to work off of, but it's it's really sort of, let's call it a um, syllabus with some uh, background data that will help you really sort of understand what's going on in a particular marketplace uh, in terms of the macros of a market, as well as the individual projects within a marketplace. It's not going to give you individual listings saying, you know, unit 2303 or anything like that. It'll give you a it'll give you a makeup of what's going on in a particular building. Why is that important? Well, it's important because basically there's too many opportunities uh, right now. South Florida condo market is oversupplied. Everything going on with the coronavirus and the uh, slowdown economically is basically is going to mean that the amount of oversupply is going to get greater and greater. When you got too much stuff for sale, basically the only way to move product, primarily which are condos, is by reducing the prices. So if you're a buyer, basically you got too much to choose from. How do you figure out where to spend your time? Otherwise, you're just running around in circles. What the tours do is they basically give you a hit list of all the different buildings and it gives you a scenario with roughly in about five to 10 seconds, you can figure out is it worth looking in this building or is it not from a, a statistical perspective? And then it comes out of personal preference. You have to go visit the building, figure out some things and see if you really want to start to drill down and, and get into whether or not uh, purchasing a unit uh, there is interesting. So we do that on our tours. Uh, we also, as part of the tours, I'm the one who narrates them um, and I'm here to answer any of your questions. So I'd encourage you to check that out. If you wanna see a tour schedule, go to condovultures.eventbrite.com and there you'll be able to figure out our schedule. Basically walking tours, 50 bucks, three hours, you walk about four miles and a bus tour is a hundred bucks, three hours and you basically you go past a lot more on a bus tour. The problem is you don't have the time to sort of get in there into the real nuance of each individual building, which you'll be able to experience sort of when you do one of our walking tours. So that's disclosure. Other disclosure is past success does not necessarily indicate what's going to happen in the future. Everything I'm telling you, I'm telling you from a personal perspective, I'm telling you based on experience, experience being a professional journalist for 13 years, as well as a columnist with the Miami Herald for five years. Real Deal, Miami Real Deal, wrote for them for five years as a columnist, as well as somebody who's been licensed in real estate since 1995 and ran a brokerage since uh, effectively 2006. Um, built up a little bit of a reputation for being a straight shooter. 
I'm going to lay it on the line and sort of tell you what I think. Uh, many people will tell you they dislike me. Uh, some people will tell you that they like me. Uh, my perspective is it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, as long as they respect you, that at the end of the day, that, that's all that really sort of um, uh, matters. So going back to uh, where I was before the break and before the disclosures, um, let me sort of uh, bring you sort of full circle as to kind of how I, I got here and why I'm doing this podcast. So if you remember 2006, uh, I left journalism, went ahead and set up a buy-side brokerage called Condo Vulture Realty. Condo uh, Vulture Realty concept was basically pretty simple. Uh, data was not being mined at the time. Uh, today we call it big data. It wasn't being mined at the time and because I was a journalist, I knew how to collect information um, about particular buildings, about units, about owners, about a whole variety of different um, uh, uh, issues. So what I started doing in 2006, myself and a team, we basically started going in and modeling buildings within a marketplace. And as we modeled the buildings within a marketplace, we could get a good sense of where the deals were, what was overpriced, what was underpriced, just a whole variety of different topics. So what we did is we would pull condo declarations, which basically is the law of the land for a particular building. We figure out what really is the building, what does it have? Every time you talk to a realtor, you talk to a developer, they talk in generalities. We wanted to see exactly what was within a building. What was the real square footage? What was this? What was that? And let's try to sort of create a, a, a model of that building uh, using spreadsheets. And then after we did that, let's go ahead and see what stuff traded for. What actually sold? Who did it sell to? What was the pricing? And what actually didn't sell? Because what um, this information would do, it was be able to give you an idea of what's really going on in the marketplace. So rather than relying on the multiple listing service, which will give you some sort of perspective very quickly with a couple keystrokes, it doesn't necessarily fill in the real stuff that where the deals are, and that tends to be the unlisted product, the shadow inventory, the pocket listings, whatever you sort of want to call it, basically stuff that's not in the MLS. This is really where the deals are. Why? Because there's a lack of transparency. Whenever there's a lack of transparency, that means there's fat involved. There can be corruption involved. There can be all types of situations involved that basically can give one side an advantage over the other side. Think of it like arbitrage. You buy in one market, you sell in another market, and you can live off that spread when the markets are inefficient. Well, when you get into unlisted properties, that's effectively what it is, and this is where you could sort of make money on the, on the, uh, the deals. So going to talking about the kind of vulture realty uh, business that was set up using data to model uh, buildings. And I like to talk about, uh, think of like a Marvel superhero. And what they'll find, what you remember if you were a kid when you're watching cartoons or maybe even some of the modern stuff, is that certain superheroes could look through a building and they could find the bad guy. And Superman or Spider-Man or Wonder Woman, whatever, could basically zoom in, go in there, deal with the bad guy and bring peace and prosperity to everyone at the end of the episode. Well, what we were doing is we were using all this information by collecting the Declaration of Independence. Uh, <laughs> Declaration of, it is independence once you know how to do it. Declaration of Condominiums. We would collect that. We would then run what's actually traded, what did not trade, which is unsold, what's the pricing, and figure out exactly what, what every developer was holding on to and the people who bought what they were ultimately uh, holding. The same way a superhero in the cartoons would be able to look and see where the bad guy is and be able to pinpoint and really use their time effectively really use their time effectively, which is ultimately what it, say, what it came down to. So once our group, kind of Vultures, started Realty, started to put all this together back in 2007, 2008, 2009, what happened is Wall Street and other institutional investors started saying, hmm, we want to come down and play in the condo market. 
we want to go to South Florida, we can buy up lots of units and ultimately we can take them down, we can rent them out, and then we can retrade them once the market turns around and we, we can make a bundle off of it. So that's what happened. That's where the game, uh, the name bulk sort of came around. I like to say in Silicon Valley, they make technology that sort of leads the world. In South Florida, we make condos. Uh, condos are what we do and the trends that are created in South Florida, they tend to spread throughout the rest of the country. So the South Florida condo market went bad before the rest of the country did. And ultimately, a lot of the things that were used in South Florida, much like a laboratory, were ultimately deployed and used throughout the rest of the country. So this is really sort of a uh, very interesting place for R&D and a variety of other uh, different types of, uh, types of topics sort of associated with it. So when the bulk started to come around, what was bulk? Bulk was when you bought 10 units or more within a building. Now, generally speaking, Wall Street, when it came down and wanted to invest, all the big, the Blackstones of the world and the others, the Carl Icons of the world, when they came to South Florida and they were looking to sort of play the game, what their play was or what their hope was, going back to 2006, uh, the 2006 uh, uh, boom, what the hope was of these, these bulk buyers was to be able to take down at least 51% of a building why? So they can, can have control of the association. They have control of the association. They could control what was going on with the maintenance fees, the HOA, whatever you want to call it, the COA, basically the, the amount of money that's paid per month by each unit owner just to sort of operate the building. So Wall Street thought if they could get 51% of a building, they could effectively control the association. They could run it as a rental. They would rent out the units, try to minimize their costs, and then lo and behold, turn around and try to sell off the units once the market started to come back, which ultimately it did in, in beginning in 2011 and really sort of gaining uh, speed and momentum in 13, 14, 15. So Wall Street came down and they looked and they looked and they looked and they looked and I worked with a ton of them, a ton of them. I think at the end of the day, we made a run at probably somewhere in the ballpark of 70 different projects, massive projects, big unit numbers. Probably end up closing somewhere in the ballpark of uh, I'd say 10%, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten 10 deals somewhere in, in there. Uh, deals I did on a bulk basis, they were with some of the biggest developers uh, in South Florida. Um, many of the buildings and the developers you would recognize. Um, I could disclose it, but I'll probably save it, talk about it in, in other uh, podcasts in the future, give you some reason to tune in. But basically what the play was when we were doing bulk deals is that you wanted to buy at or below what it would cost to actually build the damn thing again. So what was the rationale? The rationale was we don't know where the bottom is. We don't want to catch a falling knife, which is what they say on Wall Street. And we want to buy at a price that even if we pay too much, the next guy or woman who tries to build one of these towers, it's going to cost them X in order to build it. So we can buy today in the down market what it will cost at a price equal to what it will cost next time they try to build it. We should be fine. We're backstop a little bit. Now what happened was as the market continued to free fall, prices got lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. I mean, there were deals. There's a neighborhood um, uh, in South Florida called Wynwood. Wynwood had a project over there called the Synergy. Synergy, I remember chasing the note on that particular property. We had a price somewhere in the ballpark of about 40 bucks a foot buying the note and then you would have to uh, foreclose out the developer, do a, a whole variety of things. Thing ended up trading less than hundred bucks a foot. Uh, about a year and a half ago or so, units in the synergy, people were trying to trade them, 750 a foot, 750 a foot versus for something we were trading at 40 bucks a foot, at least had it penciled in at. So again, to give you perspective about the volatility and how big prices can be and why you want to sort of buy at replacement cost. What's general replacement cost? Every developer is going to tell you it's different. They're going to tell you they're efficient. 
they can do it better, they can do it cheaper. No matter what number you say, they're gonna dis disagree with you. So as long as I'm gonna piss them off anyways, let me just throw out there a ballpark 325 a foot. 325 a foot, 300 a foot, 350 a foot, the taller you go, the more it's gonna be because of engineering um, um, uh, aspects and a variety of different things. Basically, if you're looking at 300, 325 a foot, you're pretty close to replacement costs. So that raises the question, why are new condo projects selling for 600 a foot? Why were they in this cycle? Very easy, developers are greedy. I would tell you, generally speaking, going in on a project, a developer's looking at 50% profit margin. They wanna make 50% on their money. They realize going in, they start off you know, um, thinking that it's all gonna be rainbows and unicorns, but what happens is over the course of time, construction costs go up, there's cost overruns, there are changes, there's a whole variety of issues. The developers that I've seen, done consulting for and, and analyzed, basically they blend out somewhere in the 25 to 35%. So call it 30% profit margin, but they started at 50. So generally speaking, when you walk in, you hear 600 bucks a foot, chances are it's gonna cost that developer 300 bucks a foot or so to build. Now, how can it vary? It can vary primarily if you have a developer who's a newbie to town, they're gonna to try to do it perfectly. So they're gonna spend all the extra time and waste all the extra time uh, trying to get the perfect materials and the perfect this and the perfect that. Ultimately, what ends up happening with most of those projects is that the units are over-improved. Why? Because the developer wants legacy, but oftentimes the developer misses the cycle. Our cycles are typically seven to 10 years. And therefore, when the product is ultimately delivered, the developer doesn't uh, is, isn't able to achieve and realize, unless they have very deep pockets, realize what uh, they envisioned. It's the next developer or the next buyer who comes in and takes bails that developer out who's able to sort of realize the uh, exuberance of the first go around. Now, it's not politically correct to say, but one of the things you hear sometimes in a scenario like this is that the first settler gets the arrow, the second settler gets the land. So keep that in mind. About 50% profit margin going in. At the end of the day, they'll probably blend somewhere in the ballpark of about um, you know, 30% uh, or so, roughly talking about that. So bulk buyers come in 2009, 2010. They're able to clean up the mess. As they clean up the, the mess, and we were running with a ton of them. I did some... Um, some really big transactions. And I got some great stories about um, <laughs> doing a deal. There's one deal I did uh, on a bulk basis. The seller was fly fishing in Australia and the buyer wanted to close the transaction, um, but wanted the um, uh, deeds and didn't want to buy title insurance. So basically as part of the transaction, uh, somebody had to be flown out from New York to uh, Australia had to uh, go directly to where this uh, seller was fly fishing, had to get the signatures, get back on a plane out of Sydney, jump on a plane, fly back to New York. Once they arrived in New York, um, didn't spend any time in Australia. The documents were handed over, it was confirmed, and the deal was able to proceed. So it got very, very, very interesting. When you're dealing with people with big money, you got a lot of bravado, you got a lot of ego, you got a lot of hyperbole, uh, but at the end of the day, they like to do things their way. So. This is a good tip. If you're doing a deal and people say this is the way it has to be done, call bullshit on it because nothing has to be done. Everything is negotiable. If you have a particular preference, you wanna do something a certain way, fuck them, do it your way, and chances are if they wanna get the deal done, they're gonna go ahead and they're gonna follow suit. So that's the takeaway from the bulk uh, uh, basis scenario. Now, um, 2010, bulk is basically cleaned up. 2011, new construction begins. 
new construction begins in uh, a way where, you know, on the call on the vulture side, we were saying, okay, what are we going to do now? All the verticals have been taken down. Why was it taken down? Because foreign nationals were able to come in and buy stuff very cheap leading up to 2011, while Wall Street waited for 50% of a building, foreign nationals uh, basically said, screw it, we don't care. We're gonna come in and buy two here, four here, six there, eight here. And foreign nationals took down a massive amount of units. And as a result, they blew the ratios where Wall Street could never get the 51%, except for a few scenarios, of a building. And therefore, Wall Street uh, basically got it stolen from right underneath them by foreign nationals. Now, who were these foreign nationals and why were they so active? Well, they were active because the U.S. dollar got extremely weak. Generally speaking, when we were going through the Great Recession, the dollar wasn't worth anything. I'll give you some scenarios. The Canadian loonie. Canada is sort of the little brother to the United States, which is going to be the big brother. So the Canadians sort of have this complex, my experience with them, and I love them. They have this complex that they're always about 25% less than what the U.S. dollar is. So the loonie, Canadian dollar, is basically always about 25% percent less than the US dollar. During the Great Recession, the Canadian loonie was worth par, if not more. I think the highest it was, was a dollar one Canadian versus a dollar US. Now, I'm not a Forex trader, I'm not a broker dealer, I'm not none of that, but just to give you some scenarios. So if you were Canadian down in 2008, 2009, you were coming to town, somewhere in there, uh, you put down one Canadian dollar a coin, a loonie, what would you get in return? You get a dollar US. Today, in, as we sit here, basically in the beginning of the second quarter of 2020, you lay down a Canadian loonie at a currency exchange here in Miami, what you're gonna get back is roughly some of the ballpark is 70 cents US. So that's the difference. So these Canadians were coming in as well as the Brazilians, as well as the Colombians, as well as the Russians, you name it, they were all coming to town. And they had this, they had this, this, this artificially high buying power. I mean, the British pound was somewhere in the ballpark of 170, 175 versus today, which is south of 120. Just to give you an idea. So they were coming here and they, were, they had this extra buying power and real estate prices were very cheap. They were extremely cheap because stuff was free falling. The domestic buyer was getting taken out by the knees. They were losing their jobs. They were losing their homes. Basically everything was going sideways. So the foreign nationals swooped in. They took advantage of what was basically cheap real estate prices, especially condos because there was an oversupply, as well as um, this extra buying power. So they came in, they took it out, and as they took out this oversupply, the foreign nationals took out the oversupply. That prompted our cycle, which began in 2011, the current cycle. Now, what was this new cycle about? This 2011 cycle was based on foreign nationals building for foreign nationals and the property has to be happens to be located in South Florida. Effectively a colonization, if you will. So the first group to launch it is an Argentinian group that's been living in, building in, in South Florida since the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century, excuse me, 21st century. 2001, I think that 2002, they put up their first project called the Mellow Group. So the Mellow Group was a family with banking and, and, and real estate uh, backgrounds in Argentina. We're here in Miami, we're building some rental towers. They did uh, fine during the downturn, they built rental towers, they knew what their place was, they stuck in their lane, and they did very well. Now, coming out of the 2003 to 2010 cycle in 2011, the Mello uh, group, basically a father, uh, a daughter, and two sons, that's a whole family uh, operation for, for um, disclosure, I've done consulting for them. In fact, my office is located in one of their, uh, their buildings. Great people, um, yeah, nothing bad to say about them. 
So basically the, what the Mellows did is they introduced a, a, a strategy in 2011. Remember, we're coming out of the Great Recession in South Florida. Condos weren't worth anything. People were buying up what they could and that they tended to be foreign nationals. People were afraid there wouldn't be new construction um, uh, for quite some time. So what did the Mellows do? Mellows turn around and they introduced a strategy that was used in Latin America. What is that strategy? They want a 50% deposit down from a buyer and they want that buyer to pay as they go. So when the buyer goes under contract, 15 days later when the contract goes hard, 20% is put up. Then once, um, and I'm just gonna generalize because I don't remember exactly what their circumstance was because it was back in 11, May of 11, I remember going to their lunch party. It was held over at the Village of Merrick Park in the Gables. Um, I went out there because I wanted to see, you know, what kind of bravado it took to sort of do this. And when I understood what they were doing, once it was laid out, then it made all sense of the world uh, to me. So May of 2011, when they do their launch party, they were basically changing, flipping the script in that they wanted a 50% deposit. Remember, 50% profit margin is what a developer's after. So if I can build 50% down effectively, when I deliver the unit, I got a pot of gold waiting for me. Now, why was this so different? Well, it was a Latin American model where in Latin America, it's very difficult to get financing. I find it's very expensive. If the money's available at all, you got inflation, you got a variety of different things. Previous cycle, 2003 to 2010 in South Florida, which led to our massive overbuilding where close to 50,000 units were put up, tri-county wide, east of uh, Interstate 95 in Miami, Dade, Broward, Palm Beach counties. There was a 20% deposit. So what happened during the through 2003 to 2010 cycle? Basically, people took out home equity lines, they stuck their cash down, and ultimately when the unit was delivered, the unit wasn't worth what these people were supposed to pay because these would-be buyers had only 20% down. They said, you know what, screw it, I'm walking away, developer, keep the unit. Because if I were to close on it, I'll never get back to what I would be paying you today. So people walked. This particular cycle, which began at 11, because of the mellows, because of the Argentinian model, the Latin American model, the mellow model, whatever you want to call it, 50% was required to be put up front. With the 50% up front, the only people who were taking advantage of it were foreign nationals who were already comfortable with this model because that's what they were using in Latin America and other parts of the world. And they put the cash down where domestic buyers were like, no, 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 no. We're not gonna trust the developer with our cash because if we do, the developer goes bad and we to end up becoming creditors at a bankruptcy court. And we don't wanna go through that. So domestic buyers sat on the sideline while foreign nationals, beginning in 2011 with what the mellows kicked off, with the 50% deposit, foreign nationals came in and they bought it up. Now, why did they buy it up? They bought it up, the foreign nationals, uh, the Smellow's first project, because all of the oversupply units had been taken down, absorbed, and the units were being rented to who? Domestic buyers or, or individuals who couldn't get financing, nor did they want property because of what they experienced through the Great Recession. So rents were on their way up and up and up and up and up. So these investors who are coming in from abroad saying, oh my God, this is great. I'm buying cheap real estate. I got a strong currency and my rents keep going up. Let me give you context. 2009, Greater Downtown Miami, which is gonna be an area from the Julia Tuttle Causeway, roughly 36th Street North, going all the way south to the Rickenbacker Causeway, which is roughly 26th Street South. I-95 on the west side, uh, Biscayne Bay on the east side. 2009, median rental price uh, uh, in Greater Downtown Miami, Buff, basically a buck fifty a foot on a monthly basis, buck fifty a foot. What is it uh, most recently? North of two fifty a foot. So basically, in a ten year period, you had a one dollar a foot appreciation. Now, costs for the most part have been relatively uh, the same. Might have been some 
increase in association fees because of inflation or, or insurance or whatever, but basically you were, you were printing money buying these units as rents started to go up and people couldn't get financing in order to buy their own places. So investors said, you know what, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. They bought up the existing supply, oversupply from the previous cycle, and then they said, we want more, which, which Mel's basically were giving them. They built this project called 23 Biscayne Bay, right on 23rd Street, east of Biscayne Boulevard, going towards the bay. They put up this project, and basically that is what then showed and proved uh, provided proof that there was a market for it. The related group, uh, South Florida's biggest vertical uh, condo developer, basically followed suit. They put up a project. They started one in Hollywood Beach, which is in Southeast Broward County, just north of Sunny Isles Beach. They put up a project. That project had some success. The related group then said, okay, let's verify it in downtown Miami. Let's see if it will happen. Uh, related put up something called My Brickle. That was successful and the rest is history. Now suddenly 50% of the positive became the norm and things were happening. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, I'm bringing this up is because during the downturn of, of effectively 2007 to 2010, which was part of the 03 to 10 cycle, we at Condo Vultures had to model buildings and figure out what the hell they had. So we could figure out, okay, this sold, this didn't sell. Well, learning from our experience of doing it and the amount of work that was necessary, we said, okay, developers are handing out information and telling us how great they are and how salespeople, uh, beautiful people were handing out information about their great projects. We said, okay, let's collect all that information and let's go ahead and put it in our own database. And that database we gave a nice name to called Crane Spotters. So Crane Spotters Effective is a website. You can go there right now, you can check it out. We basically tracked every new project that was announced east of Interstate 95 in Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties, and we've tracked them all. Now, many of them have come through to fruition. Some of them have been sidelined. Some of them basically are stalled. Others have been canceled. But what we did is we created a hit list. So as we get into this downturn, this crane spotter database that a lot of people were using during the boom to figure out where they could go and what they could buy, we're now going to use to try to be able to figure out where is their unsold supply? Where is their unsold land? Where is the entitled dirt where developer never went forward? Basically from a distress perspective. So everything that's going on with this coronavirus, is, it could potentially be a black swan event. Uh, and that's what people on the distress side are hoping for once the health issue has been removed. Health, we want everybody healthy. But what we want is everybody healthy and then the, the owners of land or condos which basically cannot be sold in a different in the uh, different climate economically we're going into they basically probably going to be looking to dump and sell cheap so we want to be again on the buy side we want to be there to take advantage of it so this crane spotter website which everybody can visit uh, effectively is a hit list of all the different buildings that are out there uh, what does it play out to roughly about forty-seven thousand units were announced this cycle Tri-County area, east of um, I-95, Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach counties. How does that compare to last time? Last time was 49,000 units. How many of the 47,000 this cycle actually go up? Last time I looked, it's somewhere in the ballpark of about 22,000. So what does that mean? Well, you got 22,000 delivered, and then the remainder will basically be entitled dirt and or land that next cycle, when we begin next cycle, after the cleanup is done of this cycle, those would probably be the first sites out of the ground um, in terms of new construction when it goes forward. So we started Crane Spotters in 2011. Crane Spotters basically has run the whole way through. That's where the tours began. We began putting people on buses, 
took them around, showed them what was going on, handed out information, made it available. Um, and now that effectively this boom cycle has uh, ended and is going to probably free for all pretty dramatically, uh, we're gonna be spending our time basically on the distress market. Taking advantage of that, um, with any luck, we'll have a good two to three year run. Uh, if you are a buyer, I encourage you to get out there and start kicking the tires. You got a lot of people who are over leveraged, people who have paid way too much, people who basically want to cut bait on their properties. And some of those people who want to cut bait on their properties, keep in mind, they came in and they bought pre-construction or they purchased at a time when their currency was very strong against a very weak US dollar. Many of those individuals today can turn around and sell their property for less than, uh, than they paid and when they take the currency, the dollar, US dollar back to their home country, effectively it could be a push. So going back to the Canadian scenario, the loonie, Canadian dollar was, let's say it was on par, it was equal to the US dollar, today it's about 30% less. So therefore, if you are a Canadian owner, you can basically ballpark, not net it out, but just ballpark, generally speaking, you could sell your condo at a 30% loss Take the U.S. dollar, turn it into Canadian loonies or Canadian dollars, and lo and behold, it's a push for you, and you collected rent all along the way. Now, it's not 100% perfect, but it's just sort of giving you the scenario um, of them. So at this point, I want to take another break, um, a couple of words from our, a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be back to sort of uh, uh, finish this up. Are you a primary user or real estate investor who's in the market for a discounted South Florida condo? Are you searching in the markets of Greater Downtown Miami, Miami Beach north to Sunny Isles Beach, Hollywood north to Fort Lauderdale, or anywhere else east of I-95 in the Tri-County South Florida region? If so, the buyer brokers at Condo Vultures Realty are here to assist you. Condo Vultures Realty is a licensed Florida brokerage that was established in 2006 to assist educated buyers in identifying, negotiating, and purchasing units at a discounted price. To speak with a buyer broker at Condo Vultures Realty, please call 305-865-5859 or visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com. Welcome back to the condovultures.com podcast with your host, Peter Zalewski. So you can tell I'm very good at talking. I don't know, hopefully I'm making some sense, but... Um, terms of word count, I can definitely give you a lot of words. Um, a couple things before we get into our final portion of this um, first inaugural uh, podcast. Um, I wanted to just let you know that we're going to be doing these podcasts probably at least once a week, probably a little bit more frequently because I tend to be winded. Uh, most of the podcasts will probably be somewhere in the ballpark of about an hour or so. A couple of ads sprinkled here or there. If you are interested in advertising on our podcast and who's our target market, primarily investors. Um, chances are, though, as time goes by, you probably get a lot of realtors uh, who are also listening because they're trying to figure out what the hell's going on in the marketplace. A lot of the information they get out there is all on the sell side, which tends to be rah, 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 convention or visitor bureau type of stuff about how Miami's the gateway to Latin America. It's only going up. You know, real estate prices can't come down. It's a great investment all that type of stuff. So um, if you are a potential uh, advertiser, if you're somebody who's selling tile, furniture, services, title, um, you name it, uh, basically we're open to taking on sponsors. Uh, we'll work with you to kind of make things happen. 
the group might not necessarily be big in terms of the uh, listeners, but what it will have is people who tend to be very uh, well-heeled, educated, and have a real good sense of the real estate market, i.e. they tend to have money and they tend to uh, have a couple gray hairs. So if that's a target market you want to hit, uh, we'd love to talk to you about uh, potentially advertising on the countofvulture.com podcast or if you'd like to host any events. We do do events. Uh, we tend to get great turnouts. Our niche is really sort of uh, charge a premium and deal with a select group rather than charging very little, if nothing at all, and dealing with a big group. So we're really kind of after the, uh, you know, the, that 1% crowd rather than the other 99%. We don't mind uh, working with the other 99%, but generally speaking, uh, we're probably a little bit more serious, less about the look and the flash and the name brand designer uh, clothing and cars and more about the substance and being able to identify things. So if you are interested in advertising with us, you can send an email to inquiry, I-N-Q-U, excuse me, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com, or you can give us a call at the office, 305-865-5859. If you want to get some information about um, uh, advertising, if you want to get some information about the brokerage services, again, tend to work on the buy side, uh, really focus on data and analysis and ultimately discounted units. Or if you're interested in some of our tours, uh, tours, same telephone number, 305-865-5859, or go to the website, which is going to be um, condovultures.eventbrite.com. You'll see a, uh, an idea, you'll get a schedule of all our tours. Again, 50 bucks uh, per person walking tour, 100 bucks for the uh, bus tour. And everybody who takes one of our tours, besides expert analysis and the actual process of seeing the different buildings, what you get is you get a macro report about that particular submarket, what's going on from a condo perspective, a luxury unit perspective, a distress perspective, as well as the rental market. And then in addition, you get a list of all the condo projects in a particular uh, uh, market that we're studying with some analysis to help you understand very quickly whether or not you want to pursue any kind of units in that particular building and, and or just sort of cross them off your list. Again, the list does not include specific units. It, it's more of a, a summary of the standing of a particular building to know if it's vulnerable and maybe discounts can be had there, whether or not it's very strong and therefore you're gonna waste your time if you're looking for a discount because things are simply uh, too good. So. That's a recap about some of the different services. And again, reach out to us if you'd like to. Otherwise, turn into, uh, tune into our podcast uh, at least weekly. Now, if you have any comments about uh, things that are going on, you have any questions, shoot us off an email at inquiryaccountofvultures.com and I'll try to read and go through and answer some of your questions on the side. If you want to send me an email saying I'm an asshole, you don't agree with me, um, more than welcome to listen to it and we'll address it. In fact, some of those are maybe better than the complimentary uh, emails. I'd like to get into it. Um, was a journalist for a number of years, got uh, threatened with a lot of lawsuits because of stories, you know, the people try to get you to not say something. So I have a very thick skin, and uh, at the end of the day, just trying to put out the facts and uh, as I see them, but try to substantiate it all with data, whether it's a multiple listing service or it's government records or anything like that. The goal is to put the information out there because the thought process is the more information that flows, the better educated people can become and therefore they can make more educated decisions rather than simply going off of, um, you know, sell site type of information. 
convention or visitor bureau stuff, rah-rah-rah type of stuff. Because the rah-rah-rah doesn't get you anywhere except uh, behind the eight ball. And then you're trying to come back and trying to figure out how the hell you get your money out. There's a, a Brazilian developer I know who um, was contemplating uh, developing in South Florida. And his comment uh, was, uh, amongst other Brazilian developers who've, who've built here in South Florida, it's not about how much money you make, it's about how much you leave with. Because so many people have had a, a bad taste in their mouth building up here because South Florida can be a little bit of a unique marketplace. So that being said, let's get into the final stretch run and we'll, we'll bring this podcast home. Um, a little bit more about myself uh, after Crane Spotters or leading up to Crane Spotters. A couple interesting things have happened. Been quoted uh, in the press, I don't know, probably 1,500 times by now. Uh, I like to say 1,000, but that was years ago, so it's already well past that. Some of the uh, places you might have seen me was featured in Michael Moore, um, documentary filmmaker's uh, movie called Capitalism, A Love Story. Gives me a nice little role back in the day when you actually watched Blu-rays. Have my own little scene there in terms of what was going on. Michael Moore wasn't exactly happy with what we were doing in terms of taking advantage of the downturn, but uh, it is what it is. Been featured on uh, ABC News Nightline, been on the BBC, done French media, Finnish media, Australian media, Singaporean media, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Miami Herald, um, you know, Investor Business Daily, up and down and all around the board. Um, why do uh, journalists come to us? Well, as you know, uh, in most stories, uh, journalists, at least in the United States and portions of Europe, they're trying to get both sides. Too often in the industry, you only hear one side about how everything is great, and we tend to be the contrarian. Um, even when the market was starting to come back around 2011, we were the first ones to start talking about this new boom that was occurring. People were poo-pooing it, saying there was no chance in hell that it was actually going to happen. And lo and behold, um, uh, what we were saying in 11 ultimately led to what would be this cycle. So um, uh, that's a little bit uh, about me. Um, and then finally, um, I'm going to want to end every podcast. And this is the first one, so we're going to sort of develop little routines and we're going to uh, develop little uh, tendencies that you can kind of count on uh, every time you listen into one of our podcasts. One of the things I'm going to always want to end with is just a tidbit for you as an investor Something to keep in mind when you're out there sort of playing the game and you're trying to figure out, okay, um, what can I do, what can I not do? Call it a rule of thumb, something that you can sort of go by. So one rule of thumb I will sort of give to you uh, that I would use as you're starting to play the game, whether it be on the condo side or the single family house side, which we don't play in. The reason we don't play in it is when you get into a single family home, you're talking about a work of art. You're talking about something that is unique, it's special. That piece of dirt where the property is built, the type of interiors that it has, that little crevice, that Florida room, all that type of stuff, makes it very unique versus a condominium, which is more so, like I like to say, it's more of a commodity. So a condominium, from our perspective, is no different than a, um, a batch of oil or sugar or coffee or pork bellies. It's all virtually the same. It all can be figured out price-wise very simple, it's all mathematics. There's nothing unique or special about a particular unit within a building. When they build these towers, basically the first eight floors or seven floors is going to be the parking garage. On the front of the parking garage, you will have some lofts. These will be the two-story buildings. On the first two floors or so, you'll have your lobby, you'll have some retail space, you'll have some office space. When we get to the eighth floor, you're gonna have your common areas. 
uh, your, your pool, your variety of other things, uh, the gym. And then on top of the eighth floor, the building will tend to get a little bit smaller. So effectively the first eight floors of the pedestal, when you get on top of that, that's when you get into the units. So the units typically begin, the traditional units will begin on the eighth floor and they'll go all the way up. Maybe they'll be 50, 60, 70 stories tall. Tallest tower to go up this particular cycle is about 84 stories, just to give you context. So when you start to go up in these, um, these units, once you get past the pedestal part, virtually all the units are the same. When you get to the, what they call the penthouse, now what's interesting about South Florida is we've created this scenario where you have an upper penthouse, you have a penthouse, an upper penthouse, and a lower penthouse. Some of them may actually call it a sky deck in addition to that. Why? Because any kind of uh, nuance or uh, vanity you can add to it, which ultimately means you can get more money. So, but generally speaking, as you go up in a building, the layouts are all the same, with a few exceptions. The, the units at the, at the top tend to have a little bit uh, uh, the, the taller ceilings, if you will. So instead of being someone in the vicinity of uh, you know eight to ten feet, they might be they'll be ten to twelve feet, something like that. But otherwise, everything is virtually the same. The layouts are the same, the looks the same, the interior is the same, the kitchens, the this, the that, it's all virtually the same. So uh, generally speaking, it's um, it's about three to ten grand per floor as you go up. And um, if you are in an oceanfront building, normally you're looking at about one hundred and fifty bucks a foot more to view the water versus viewing the city in an oceanfront building. And when you get into a bayfront building, typically the bay view will be about 75 bucks a foot more than the city view in that bayfront building. So these are some of the, uh, the real generalities. So three to 10 grand per floor as you go up or down and all around. And then the views, uh, a premium view was typically 150 a foot more if you are in an oceanfront building than compared to the city view. And then in a bayfront building, about 75 bucks a foot more now, is this a hard, fast rule? No. Um, are you going to come up with different numbers along the way if you run your numbers in a particular building? Chances are yes. What is all that based on? That's based on buyer demand. But when a developer is originally releasing a building, this is generally speaking how they're going to put that out there. So hopefully that's a good tidbit for you as you're sort of trying to understand and analyze a particular building. Now, a little tidbit I would throw out to you that's very unique to um, uh, a condominium is square footage you'll look at a building and you'll hear that a square footage is X. But then in reality, the property appraiser will say it's Y and there's a disparity. Why is there a disparity? What, well, the reason is once you get into some of these buildings, the square footage that's laid out may in fact be architectural square footage versus what they call engineering square footage or living area, which would be engineering versus architectural, which is the gross. Now, how do you make up with the difference? And generally speaking, it's eight to 12% uh, spread between the, the gross and the net or the, the architectural versus the engineering. Why is that? And it's answer is simple, it tends to be walls. So that space uh, where all the cables are hidden and the plumbing is and a variety of other things, that's the square footage you're not actually getting to use, uh, but yet you get the benefit of. So that will typically give you eight to 12% spread so you'll hear about some lawsuits followed by a buyer who says, I was promised you know, 1,000 square feet. In reality, I only got 900 square feet. Why is that? Well, chances are it's because the architectural square footage versus the engineered or the uh, gross versus the net. So that's a good thing to sort of keep in mind. Now, if you are buying a unit and someone tells you that the square footage is X, but the property appraiser says it's Y, who's the property appraiser? That's the tax man uh, in Dade County. 
Pedro Garcia, the text man. So what's the difference? Who do you go with? Do you go with the, uh, the realtor is telling is adamant that it's this because that's what their seller told them or do you go with the tax man? Always go with the government. Why? Because the government may or may not be wrong, but at least they're official versus someone else who's giving you some information. Worst thing you wanna do is trade off of bad information. So when you're factoring in your pricing, make sure you're using the living area or you're using the property appraiser numbers. Do not rely on, based on my experience, do not rely on what the realtor is telling you or what the seller is telling you. Um, you know, there was a saying when I was in journalism and it went, if your mother said she loved you, check it out. Well, I would encourage you in real estate, especially in South Florida real estate, especially condominiums, make sure you always check that out. And one final tidbit that I will drop before we sort of move on. I was talking about how a single family house is really a kind of a work of art versus a condo, which is really a commodity. Uh, that condo is effectively no different than pork bellies or orange juice or coffee or oil. It's all virtually, virtually the same. So what, is, what does that sort of mean? What that means is when you're playing the game in South Florida, I want you to kind of uh, consider, maybe you'll agree, maybe you'll disagree, but consider this concept. When you are west of Interstate 95, those are gonna be real people who care about their jobs, care about how much insurance costs, care about how much a gallon of milk is, how much your baby diapers, um, you know, what does it cost for eggs? When you're east of Interstate 95, I want, to, I want you to go back to the day before we had high frequency trading in the stock market. High frequency trading is basically you get online, Robinhood or Ameritrade or whatever, you can, you can buy your stock, it's all electronic and then you don't really sort of see anything. Well, back in the day before that all sort of emerged, what you did is you, you would put a call into your broker, your uh, broker dealer, your, your stock broker. The stock broker would make a call to somebody on the floor, somebody on the floor would make a, uh, give an order to a runner, runner would then take that order and take it to people in the pit. These are the people, if you remember back in the movies, everybody would be yelling and screaming and they're wearing jackets with numbers and their hands are up and hands are down and all that type of stuff. Well, that's effectively what's going on in the condo market in South Florida, Eastern Interstate 95. These are not real people, these are investors. These are investors who are in for a three, five, seven year hold. When the whole global sea level rise and global warming was, was coming down the pike, a lot of people were asking, aren't you worried about the global uh, rising sea levels and what's gonna happen with the condominium? And the answer was always no. And you say, well, how, how could it be no? You live in, in South Florida, Miami, one of the areas most prone to uh, basically getting flooded out. Why do people not care? Because the reality is these investors were not looking to live the American dream with a family of four and a dog. What they were looking to do is take advantage of a cycle, which is seven to 10 years. So they were hoping they would be in three, five, seven years, they would make their money and they would exit. So by the time the seas rose and flooded out a building or Miami Beach, these people would have already gone in, gotten out, taken their cash and moved on to the next investment before any of that would sort of go on. So as you look at this condo market in South Florida, and as we talk about this condo market in South Florida, it's not about the family of four and a dog living the American dream, it's about the trader trying to make a little bit here, make a little bit there, and simply pass it along to someone else. And if you start to look at the investment opportunities and situations in South Florida, east of Interstate 95, under the, in that prism, it might start to make a lot more sense to you as to why prices are what they are. Now there's a variety of other factors that kind of um, come into play, but that's just a, a parting thought, something for you to consider. Now, thank you for tuning in for the first podcast of condovulture.com. Um, 
I'm excited. I'm optimistic. Um, looking forward to putting out these podcasts. As time goes by, I'll get better at it. We'll get better at it. So uh, please stick with us in the growing pains and um, tune in again for the next episode. And each and every time, I hope to make it something where you feel as if it's worthwhile. Um, and I want to do the podcast sort of the way I listen to podcasts. I like to go out walking. I'll put a podcast on. I want it to be in-depth, detailed. I want it to get into uh, real, uh, uh, you know, thorough information. And that's ultimately going to be what um, what I'm going to be trying to do here for you. So if you have any suggestions, you got any complaints, you got any questions, send them over to inquiry at condomvultures.com or give us a call, 305-865-5859. Be safe out there. We're going to get through this coronavirus once it's all done and, and we're healthy again. And people can actually go out and uh, not have to social distance. Um, it'll be time to start buying because there's going to be plenty of opportunities on the street in terms of condominiums. And hopefully, um, you know, some of the information you pick up from this podcast will help you to sort of ultimately uh, realize uh, your goals and your dreams. So thanks, everybody. And uh, tune in again uh, next week. Thank you. Welcome to the Condo Vultures Podcast with your host, Peter Zalewski. This is episode two. If you didn't listen to episode one, I'd encourage you to do so. All the episodes we're going to be doing going forward, and these are at least weekly uh, podcasts, all the episodes uh, going forward, they're all going to kind of build upon a foundation. So if you're jumping in uh, on this episode and you haven't listened to episode one, I'd encourage you to do so. The basic premise of the podcast is to try to give you straight talk, a little bit of salty language. I tend to be a little bit, um, you know, I don't always necessarily have a good um, uh, vocabulary in terms of I tend to curse a little bit. Um, uh, uh, check out the podcast, uh, listen to this podcast, but what I will tell you is if you can get through it, you're going to get some great information. Now for this podcast, I want to introduce you to a former journalist, longtime Miamian and somebody who's now has his own business is, and is in the uh, public relations marketing business. So he's got some great perspective about what's going on with businesses on the ground in Miami in the South Florida area, as well as what sort of happened uh, in the past and what can we take from the past and apply it to the future, uh, ultimately in Miami. But what we're trying to do with the podcast, we're trying to educate uh, investors and would-be buyers as to really what Miami's all about, what the game is really about. Now, a lot of people come from different cities uh, or states or countries. They try to play in the Miami real estate game. And what they find is it's dramatically different. So I want you to look at these podcasts as a great way to get some straight talk about what's really going on, what the reality is, and ultimately give you a sense of what they call down here the Miami hustle. It's not necessarily negative, but it's just a way of doing business. So um, we're going to take a little break. After that break, we're going to get into the um, podcast, which is going to feature a good friend of mine, former colleague, uh, former journalist, somebody who's got a lot of street cred in terms of um, uh, the South Florida marketplace, especially on the real estate side. And I have a feeling you're going to uh, really enjoy and appreciate uh, this podcast runs a little bit longer than the one hour that I've sort of um, uh, setting for myself. That being said, uh, I don't think you're going to be disappointed. So welcome to the Condo Vultures uh, podcast with your host, Peter Zalewski. And um, uh, after, right after the uh, 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 first intermission, the break, the ad, whatever you want to call it, we're going to get into the, uh, the heart of it. Thanks so much.